Good morning, everybody. Happy Monday on my end of the world. It's Miss Funk here reporting to you for AP World History, Section 6.6. Today, we're going to be talking about economic imperialism. Um, I am going to get extra, extra, extra nerdy on you with this podcast today. This is something I really enjoy talking about. Um, So I hope you'll enjoy listening along. As always, you're going to take notes and follow along on the PowerPoint as we go. So let's get started. You're going to put your notes into five sections today, um, starting off with a basic definition. Then we're going to jump around the world and look at some examples of economic imperialism. So India, China, Latin America, and then wrap it up with a summary. It sounds like a lot. This is actually a pretty short PowerPoint. Okay, so economic imperialism is a form of imperialism. Um, As we've been studying so far, nations tend to exert political influence first before they take somewhere over. Um, But economic imperialism is going to be exerting influence through economic means, so through the ways that a nation makes money. Um, The economy of a nation that's been taken over is going to sell what the controlling country wants it to at the price the controlling country wants it to and buy only what the controlling country wants it to. Um, So the imperialist nation gets to decide how the new country they own uses their money. Um, The big summary of this is imperialists always want Money. That's like the lesson we should learn from this unit is every imperialist is super, super, super greedy and they don't care how they get that money. Um, And one of the ways they did this sort of control was through an export economy. Ooh, an export economy, uh, which is where the controlled nation puts out raw materials for industrialized nations to use. So what that means is that these nations that are being controlled are really only going to produce crops, right? So cash crops like cotton, which can then be turned into fabric by the British or by the Americans or by the nations that have factories, which can be sold back and they can make a huge profit. So let's jump into some examples. First, we're going to look at India. So India has been controlled by the British East India Company. Note, that doesn't say the British, but the British East India Company for spices for the centuries. So we know India had that sweet, sweet spice trade. Everybody wanted a piece of it. And the British were the first to really take control and get India. It became known as the jewel of the British Empire. So India evolved into an export economy for the British, where they put out most of the cotton and fabrics. They learned to weave patterns that Europeans would buy. Um, It helped the British to make a ton of money. Um, so naturally in doing this, the British completely ignored human rights and completely ignored problems that were bursting up in the country underneath all of this money. So underneath the jewel of the empire, there was a lot of problems. And one of the biggest ones of those was the economic policy towards the nation itself. So the British, as good capitalists, followed the theories of Adam Smith. And one of those major theories was laissez-faire capitalism. And laissez-faire, as you should remember, means hands-off. So the British would kind of leave the management of the economy alone. So it would do what it needed to do, which is a major theory of capitalism. Um, And one of the things they needed to do to manage their new colony was to collect taxes. And so because they were hands off, they left that tax collecting to lenders in the country. Um, These lenders tended to be sort of, well, they tended to be definitely unfair, um, known as sahukars. So the sahukars were scammers, point blank. Um, they basically would do anything they could to make a profit. And so one of the ways they would make a profit is by exploiting the Indian peasants. Um, When the Indian peasants couldn't pay their taxes, 
um, they could instead give the title deed to their land to the Sahukars, who would take it for non-payment as a collection, um, which was great for them because more land meant more crops for them, which meant more money for them, which is all they ever wanted. So um, one of the big things in India is that the crops can be controlled by the weather. So um, periods of difficulty in crop growing wasn't always uncommon. And so one of the things that sahukars would do to make money would be during a time of scarcity when there wasn't a lot of grain, um, they would hoard what grain there was and hold on to it to drive up the price of the grain and then sell it at a ridiculous price. Peasants who can't even pay their taxes can't pay for grain. Peasants who can't pay for grain, who can't pay their taxes, who have no land equals dead peasants. So um, this famine, which took place from 1899 to 1900, uh, has a death count of somewhere between three to 10 million people um, that died, that starved to death. The grain was there. Um, the sahukars were holding onto it. But because of mismanagement and because the British, despite d disapproving verbally of this practice, let it continue to happen, a lot of people died. Um, in fact, the British's management of their sort of tax collection system in India was so poor that there is an entire Wikipedia page dedicated to the number of famines in India during British rule. A whole Wikipedia page. So millions and millions of people are dying. Um, famines from 1769 all the way to the 1940s um, are occurring in British-ruled India. But the British were making like tons of cash, so it was totally fine. No, no spoilers. It wasn't fine. That was sarcasm. All right, that was depressing. Let's move on. It's not going to get any better. Um, now we're going to move up a little bit to China. So we've talked a ton about China in AP World History, and this isn't even the first time we've talked about it in this unit. I promised you a deeper explanation of China and imperialism, and I'm going to give that to you today. So China has been a major trade power in the world in this time period for ages. Literally, they were the first people we talked about as really, really important because they consistently had advancements over everybody else and they had the stuff everybody else wanted. Um, so for most people, things like tea or silk, you could even use porcelain, all these different things. Um, and the Europeans, frankly, didn't have anything the Chinese wanted, um, which created a balance of trade that was super unfavorable to the Europeans right? Because the Chinese are able to export all of their stuff to the Europeans and make tons and tons of money and then not have to spend that money on imports. And so because of that, the British started to run pretty low on their silver, which is what their currency was based on, because the Chinese refused to take payment for anything but silver, as we talked about way back before Christmas break. Um, so on this slide, we have an excerpt from a primary source called the Qianlong Letter from 1793. And the um, emperor of China wrote, our dynasty's majestic virtue has penetrated unto every country under heaven, and kings of all nations have offered their costly tribute by land and sea. As your ambassador can see for himself, we possess all things. I set no value on objects strange or ingenious and have no use for your country's manufactures. So basically, leave us alone, get wrecked. Um, we're not interested. It's pretty great for China, at least in this time period. And this is in 1793. But that really started to grind the British's gears. So the British, who have been able to take over so many places, they're known as the empire where the sun never sets, um, want to get into China and they want to make money. Um, they want to make China buy their stuff. So how do you make a country that wants nothing to do with you 
buy your products, you turn your products into something they can't say no to, which in this case, we're going to see Britain become drug dealers. Yeah, bet you didn't think we were going to talk about drugs today, but we sure were. In case you thought that the imperialists could not get any more depraved, the way the British decided to make money was to start growing and selling opium. Um, you want to think of opium as the ancestor to heroin, which is an opioid. It's a drug made from poppies. Um, so the British East India Company begins to import opium into China in exchange for silver. Now, opium is extremely addictive. As you know, um, the opioid crisis in the United States is incredibly bad, um, especially even here in Kentucky. And the that's the whole point of a drug deal, right? The idea that you're going to keep making money on this forever because those people are going to want to come back. And so the British are getting what they want out of this. They're getting their silver. Um, and in the meantime, they're getting an entire population of a country addicted to opium. Yeah. So um, China attempted to ban the sale of opium, but by that point, it was too late. So many people were addicted to the drug, and the British were the only providers of the drug, um, that the ban really didn't do much. So trapped into this situation of desperation, the Chinese knew the only way to get this to stop was to go to war with Britain. Um, if they could kick them out of the country, then they could focus internally on trying to stop the epidemic of opium from spreading any further in the country. Um, so in 1839, the first opium war began. And um, this became sort of a cautionary tale for the rest of Asia because the British were able to defeat the Chinese fairly easily um, because of their war technology. So these war technology advancements came out of industrialization um, and the steamships and better weapons and all of the things the British had made it so that the Chinese couldn't win. Um, this was one of the reasons why Japan started to industrialize. They saw what happened to China and realized it was a dog-eat-dog -dog world. Um, either you become an imperialist or you get taken over. <clears throat> so um, by losing the first opium war, China is forced to open its ports to all foreign trade through the Treaty of Nanking. Um, and one of the points of that treaty said that all foreign goods had to be allowed into China, including opium. So the British continued to trade opium in China. Eventually, this evolves into a second war. So the opium wars break out again in 1856, and this time go on until 1880. And China loses again. This time, when China loses, um, the Europeans have got to decide, how do we help China? Let's get them back on their feet. No, um, that's not what they did. Instead, all of the imperialist nations met together, much like they had at the Conference of Berlin, um, and decide instead of having one person take over China, um, they split it into what are called spheres of influence. Spheres of influence are a uniquely economic imperialist uh, function in that every European nation, or excuse me, several imperialist nations get exclusive trading rights in one part of China instead of owning a territory. So they don't need the territory itself. Instead, they just get trading rights. They get to sell their goods to the Chinese um, who will buy them. And that's it, right? They can only buy from them. It's a guaranteed market. Um, and the British continue to trade opium along with other things. And this destroyed um, China's sort of stance as a power in the world. So looking to the right of the slide, we're on slide number eight, um, the political cartoon that goes with this is probably one of the more famous political cartoons. You probably have seen it before. Um, I remember studying it when I was in AP World History once upon a time. Um, so the cartoon depicts the imperialist nations of the world cutting China into 
pieces, right? And so like a pie. So uh, going from left to right, we've got the British, the Germans, um, the Russians, the French, and then the Japanese all the way to the right. And then China in the back trying to protest, but clearly it's too late. We looked at a letter at the beginning of this section of these notes um, written in 1793 that talked about how China didn't need outside influence. And that letter is often paired with another one written in 1839. I've put a small excerpt of that letter here and I'm going to read it too. Um, the letter is to Queen Victoria, the Queen of England in 1839. And this piece says, We find your country is 60 or 70,000 li from China. Yet there are barbarian ships that strive to come here for trade for the purpose of making a great profit. The wealth of China is used to profit the barbarians. That is to say, the great profit made by barbarians is all taken from the rightful share of China. By what right do they then in return use the poisonous drug to injure the Chinese people? Even though the barbarians may not necessarily intend to do us harm, yet in coveting profit to an extreme, they have no regard for injuring others. Let us ask, where is your conscience? I think this really sums up the attitude of the nations who were oppressed under imperialists um, in a really heartbreaking and succinct way. Um, even though the barbarians may not necessarily intend to do harm, in coveting profit to the extreme, they have no regard for injuring others. That just about covers it. Uh, it's a really harsh reality um, that the British and the Americans and the Europeans and any nation that was imperialist caused in the places that they were taking over, whether that was politically or economically. Okay, speaking of making profit at any cost, let's skip across the world to the other side, to Latin America. Um, so in the 19th century, the Latin American nations were just starting to get their independence and just starting to sort of make it out on their own. Um, and, and there, the imperialists saw opportunity. So in Latin America, imperialist nations wanted access to what they always do, raw materials, cheap workers, and exclusive trade rights. So if you only trade with me, then I get all of your money, I get all your resources, I get your stuff back to greed. Um, so some of the raw materials that people were interested in from Latin America included copper, guano, um, types of fruit, all kinds of different things. Um, so the very first imperialist nation to get involved in Latin America was the United States. And the United States put out a document called the Monroe Doctrine. Basically, what the Monroe Doctrine said was um, nobody but the United States is allowed to interfere in this hemisphere, the Western Hemisphere. Um, and if they do, then they'll suffer the consequences of the United States. The U.S. is pretty strong at this point. Um, and the idea was supposedly that they were protecting Latin America from European invasion. They were, but they weren't protecting them because they were Latin America or because they were good neighbors. Actually, really, they were just protecting them because they wanted to be the first ones to get in there and get their stuff. Um, eventually, they allowed a couple other countries to come in and influence. So the Europeans got involved um, in Latin America, specifically the British were involved in Argentina, and then the Spanish got involved in Chile, among others. But these are the most important. So when it comes to the Latin Americans, we're looking at American imperialism, British imperialism, and Spanish imperialism. So the imperialists kind of repeat their pattern as they do everywhere else um, and start to invest in Latin America. And investing in Latin America, they're really investing for their own gain. Um, so they help to create things like railroads for infrastructure and ports and all of these other things and bring in some modern technology from industrialization so that they can become raw material factories and so that they can have a work supply for their factories and for their uh, farms and things like that. 
So again, these imperialists are not investing in this country for their um, for their kindness, right? They're not trying to modernize because they're so nice. They're trying to build a market. So fun fact about Miss Funk. I hate bananas, like with all of my heart and soul. I don't just don't like them. I don't like the taste. I don't like the texture. I think they're disgusting. Um, and I feel validated in my hatred of bananas when it comes to history sometimes. Um, and the reason for that is because of what are called banana republics in Latin America. So um, control wasn't just exerted by nations, right? Um, economic imperialism could be impacted by businesses and corporations as well. Um, and so these businesses and corporations would use the hand of the government to sort of strong arm their way into getting what they wanted. And one of the most famous of these were the banana companies that were in Central America and a little bit in South America, but mostly Central. Um, and these nations came to be known as banana republics. So corporations such as United Fruit Company and Standard Fruit Company, which now we know as Chiquita and Dole, had a massive trade monopoly in these nations. And they had so much money that they were able to control a lot of the infrastructure, even the postal network of some of these nations. Um, so they built up some services in order to continue trading um, and continue exploiting these countries. So the workers who were working on the banana plantations in Latin America were um, making very low wages, were treated very badly. Um, there were no workers' protections like we see sort of coming out of industrialized nations in this time period. Um, and these businesses controlled everything in the country. Um, even leaders were put into power because they favored Chiquita Banana or they favored Dole Banana. And so these guys are able to make tons of money exporting these bananas all over the world, pointing out how great bananas are, talking about how they might have, you know, magic cures that are associated with bananas and all this other stuff people believe. Um, and they don't pay their workers, so they make a humongous profit. And these infrastructure set up by businesses had a massive long-term effect on the economy of Latin America. Um, even when they got free of the Spanish, the Latin Americans never really had control of their economy because they were consistently being put into exports um, where they had to send all of their resources out to other people um, where they never learned how to manage their own economy or rather they weren't allowed to learn how to manage their own economy um, or their own resources or their own industrialization, which had astounding impacts on the nation itself. So yeah, my petty hatred of bananas, valid. Um, I'm gonna share with you a poem that is has been translated from the Spanish by me, actually, um, called La United Fruit Co. Um, and it's by Pablo Neruda, who is a Chilean poet. And it was published in 1950. Um, this is sort of just a, I have a captive audience and I want to read it to you because I think it does a nice job um, talking about some of the, the suffering and the pain um, that the United Fruit Company caused and the reasons that they did it um, in a really beautiful way. I love this poem a lot. Um, so I'm going to share it with you. If you click the link on the slide, you can read along with me. I'll try to read slowly. Um, this poem has been translated by myself. I will read it again in Spanish if you really want me to, but I think the English will impact us all a little bit more. So, La United Fruit Co., Pablo Neruda, 1950. When the trumpet sounded, it was all prepared on earth, and Jehovah gave out the world to Coca-Cola Inc., Anaconda, Ford Motors, and other entities. The United Fruit Company reserved for itself the juiciest piece, the central coast of my land, the gentle waste of America. It baptized anew their land as banana republics, and over their sleeping dead, 
over the restless heroes who had conquered greatness, the liberty, and the flags. It established an opera buffa, alienated free wills, gave crowns of Caesar as gifts, unsheathed envy, attracted the dictatorship of flies. Trujillo flies, Tachos flies, Carias flies, Martinez flies, Ubico flies, flies sopping with humble blood and marmalade, drunken flies that buzz over the tombs of the common people, circus flies, learned flies, adepted tyranny. Among the bloodthirsty flies, the fruit company disembarks, full to burst with coffee and fruits and ships that slide like trays of treasures of our submerged lands. Meanwhile, along the sugared abyss of the harbors, Indians fall over, buried in the morning mists. A body rolls, a thing with no name, a fallen number, a cluster of dead fruit spilled into the pile of rot. I think I could spend weeks Um, I could certainly spend an entire podcast just talking about this poem and all of the imagery and the um, references and the things that are talked about in the poem itself. Um, But I think the part that is the most important is this poem really does a good job of illustrating loss um, and want, right? So if you compare the last two stanzas, when you look at the fruit company covered in coffee and fruits and treasures on their ships as they make their way back home um, and then take it back to the harbor where the bodies of Indians who have no name, um, where they're even lowercase, right? Indians instead of proper noun Indians um, are falling into the harbor. It's just a cluster of dead fruits filled into a pile of rot. Um, it does a really nice job creating a uh, contrast between the success of the imperialists and of the businesses in this case and the suffering that they cause. All right, so to wrap up this set of notes and objective 6.5, here are the points you need to know. Our too long didn't read of this entire slideshow, or your too long didn't read of your notes when you're studying for the AP exam. Number one, imperialists use economic control just as much as political. Um, A lot of the times they would take over a nation and make a colony. Other times they would just completely control the economy of another country through imports and through export economies and through other things. Uh, Two, nations can be controlled by companies, not just other nations. So um, things like United Fruit Company or the East India companies would take over and exert economic pressure and control on nations that were oppressed. The number one goal of imperialists was always to make money and they would stop at nothing to do it. So no matter what the cost was, human or otherwise, they would stop at nothing to make that cash, which would cause long-term problems in the nations that were taken over that we're still seeing the impact of today. All right, so that wraps up Objective 6.5, Economic Imperialism. Hopefully you've got a better understanding of the ways that imperialist nations could control outside of political influence after listening to this podcast. Um, No matter where you are or where you're listening, I want you to know I love you very much. Be safe, make good choices, and I will talk to you soon. Bye, guys.